You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, March 28th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here with Jared Dillian, editor of the Daily Dirt Nap. Hi, Jared. How are you? Hey, what's up? Not too much. It's good to see you. Uh, if we take a look, it's been a little while since you and I have talked, so I'm, I'm really curious to hear what your thinking is around these markets. And you know, if we take a look, the beginning of a new trading week, and we had some, it looked like it was going to start out to be a pretty quiet day, but we actually had some action here, uh, especially when we look at oil down really sharply, 9% on the day. We saw a bid back into risk assets, the NASDAQ kind of picking up steam as we headed into the close here, up more than a percent. We saw Bitcoin and Ethereum both up sharply. Um, prior to that, it looked like the action was really overseas. We saw in Japan, uh, the yen hit a six-year low as the Bank of Japan intervened to keep yields down there. And the U.S. Treasury looks like it was maybe more the quiet market today with that yield, the 10-year yield anchored right around 2.46%. So it seems like everyone's sort of trying to figure out what happens from here. You know, What's top of mind for you, Jared? What are you looking at? Well, I'm kind of uh, in between things right now. Um, you know, when 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 the S and P was down about twelve percent uh, and sentiment was really negative, you know, in my newsletter I made a pretty bullish call uh, to play for a bounce in tech stocks in particular. Um, I exited that call on Friday, and uh, now I'm I'm just kind of uh, in between ideas. You know, um, you know, you mentioned oil being down. I should never trade oil. Like <laughs> me trading oil is like the guy that walks up to the poker table and just gets like like busted out every time. Like I so I'm not going to make make any predictions on oil, but I will say that it wasn't just oil. A lot of commodities were down across the board today, and you know today's rally towards the end of the day was a really big vol crushing rally. Like VIX almost got into the 19 handle. So, you know, the, the, the bounce in stocks seems to be continuing. Uh, I'm kind of agnostic as to whether it will or not, but that's where I am right now. Yeah, it's interesting because you kind of think about what's really changed here, you know, over we still have so much uncertainty when it comes to geopolitics. And so it's, do, you, do you get the feeling that, that maybe the lows were in and there's something fundamental going on? Or, or it, does this seem, just seem like price action? You know, just, just things got overdone, but there's not really a lot of conviction from, uh, as to where we go from here. Well, one thing that I'm looking at and I'm spending some time thinking about is the yen, uh, the move in dollar yen. I mean, dollar yen today got up to 125, which was the highs during the whole Abenomics period. Um, and it broke out two weeks ago from 116. I mean, it's moved like 10% in a week and a half. Like that's, that's an incredible move. And I don't think a lot of people are talking about it. Um, there's big macro implications to that. And I'm not really sure what they are. Uh, I don't know if this means that the dollar is going to continue to rally. I really, I really don't know what it means, but you know, in my newsletter, what I've been saying for a long time is that 
uh, FX is kind of boring and it's a waste of time. And we're starting to get some, you know, really multi-standard deviation moves in FX. And I don't know if this is a trend or not. Yeah. Gosh, if oil is hard to trade, I think currencies are even even harder just because there are so many things to take into consideration uh, when you're looking at that market. Um, if you're trying to, if you're going to try to think about the macro, uh, you know, implications of that, where do you even start? I mean, what what would be the things that you'd be concerned about that would impact your investments or, or you know, ideas that you'd want to maybe put on as a result of this? Well, you kind of have to go back ten years ago to when um, Shinzo Abe was elected prime minister in 2012, and he had his three pillars for restoring Japanese economic growth. And, you know, between Abe and the Bank of Japan, they devalued the yen a lot. Uh, if you remember, DXJ, the ETF, was launched in 2012, just as Abenomics was starting. And the Nikkei went from about 8,000 to 20,000. There was this big reflation in the Japanese economy. But that was also concurrent with the dollar getting a lot stronger relative to all G10 currencies. The Canadian dollar really sold off during that time period. So, you know, currencies, you know, you said that they're hard to trade. I would say that they're hard to trade 90% of the time when you don't really have an underlying trend, but when they trend, they really trend. I mean, that's a, that's a Stan Druckenmiller quote. You know, he said, you know, the old timers know when the yen trends, the yen trends. And so Raul posted on Twitter today, he posted a chart of dollar yen going back about 50 years or so. And it's on the verge of breaking out of resistance. And, uh, you know, there could be some fireworks if it does. Yeah, he was talking to Lynn Alton about that um, in their conversation. Really interesting things came up. I encourage you all, uh, if, if you've got access to it, to go check it out. But yeah, the, the feeling that something big is brewing there. I, I wonder, um, I wonder, there's also been huge moves in bonds, right? I mean, I think the worst quarter ever, at least on some you know record keeping, uh, and we we've seen parts of the yield curve inverting. I, I know a lot of people are thinking about this. Does that you know historically that signals warning signs that increases the odds of recession, right? Um, the short end response to the fact that the the Fed is going to be more aggressive, but the long end kind of doesn't buy it and thinks that the economy is going to weaken as a result of that. So you see. You see that happen. Um, are you concerned about that? Is that something you're watching? What, what do you What do you make of the bond action? I'm watching it for sure. It, it's very slow moving. Let's talk about the yield curve first. So you know, five thirties is just about flat right here. Two tens, I want to guess, is about twenty basis points. If you're really using the yield curve as a metric for you know timing recessions. You really have to look at three-month bills in 10 years, uh, which actually I don't know where that is off the top of my head, but it's it's steeper than twos tens. Um, and the thing about using the yield curve to time recessions, now all recessions are preceded by the real yield curve reversion, but the, t the amount of time it takes really varies. It can take anywhere from six weeks to 18 months um, from the from the time of inversion. So really there's it's the once the yield curve inverts the clock starts ticking but it could be well into 2023 before we actually have negative gdp you what well, you get the sense that people so so maybe should back up a, a minute do you think the fed is going to be able to 
pull off all the rate increases that they're signaling? Do you think they can be as aggressive as they say they want to be without causing damage to the economy? Can the U.S. economy kind of take that those level of higher rates? Uh they're not really being aggressive, you know, in the context yet, of where they, they want that. Well, you're right. I mean, if they go, you know, in the context of inflation at eight percent, you know, getting us to two percent Fed funds isn't really aggressive. Um, they would have to do a lot more than that. I mean, if they really want to do if they really want to do something about inflation, they have to hike Fed funds above where inflation is, which means Fed funds of eight percent, which they're totally not willing to do. If you look at their economic pro pro projections, they predict that CPI will be at 2.6% in 2024. I don't know how they're going to get CPI down to 2% in 2024, you know, unless uh, unless some recession just exogenously happens. So they're not being aggressive enough. They could do more. Um, it seems like they're being aggressive, but they're really not. Yeah, relative to doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, relative to that, that, like that aggressive relative to what they were doing. But you're absolutely right. Um, you know, historically, these are really low rates. And uh, do you? Uh, what more should they be doing? What do you think they should be doing? Well, uh, first of all, you know, not to Monday morning quarterback this, but. You know, they should have started hiking in early 2021 because uh, we had we had signs that inflation was ticking up back then. Um, and I, I think I've said on the daily briefing before that, you know, they waited to hike until it was politically, you know, convenient for them to do so, you know, when inflation had already started. So they should have started a lot earlier. But, you know, now, given the situation that we're in. Uh, I mean, if I were Jay Powell, I would do seven 50 basis point hikes going into the end of the year. I would get Fed funds up to 375, 4%. Um, and that would be a pretty good start. And you would invert the yield curve. You would engineer a recession and that would get inflation down. But what the Fed, what they want is they, they don't want door number one. They don't want door number two. They want door number three which is they want to bring inflation down without causing a recession, which is why you hear all this talk about a soft landing, yeah. right? There's there's absolutely no scenario here where you can get a soft landing. Either you're going to have a recession or you're going to have CPI printing above 10%. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the holy grail, isn't it? But it's it almost. It, it's hard to see how that ever happens. They always want to try to do a soft landing and inevitably um, something happens and and it might be recession. But the other the other side of that, of course, is asset prices is a stock market. There's been a lot of conversation around that about maybe this is different this time. They're not going to worry. Would you expect to see the same reaction that we saw in the past? We've already seen a big decline in stocks, but do you think that there is that uh, that same possibility that as they raise rates, you're going to see a deterioration in stocks again, that's going to cause the Fed to have concern? Or does it feel different this time, especially because we've seen a, a big sell-off already? Well, 
I think everybody's kind of always expecting the next big bear market. You know, we had we were down 35% during COVID. We were down 57% during um, the great financial crisis. We were down 50% during the dot-com bust. So everybody's kind of on the lookout for these really big bear markets. But more commonly, the market will be down 15 to 20%. And that happened in 2011, and it happened in 2012. In 2011, you had the European debt crisis. In 2012, you had the S&P debt downgrade, and that those were they were they were they were a crisis, but they were a minor crisis. So you know everybody kind of thinks this is a big deal. It's different this time. We have the war in Ukraine, stuff like that. But it's you know it's really hard to get stocks down more than 20% unless you have a big some kind of leverage issue or a big exogenous shock. That's interesting. So that sounds like you think we've kind of bottomed. Well, don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> let me let me let me re, let me rephrase that, Jared. Do you think we've bottomed? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, I really I, no. I really I really don't know. Like you know, when I said that I'm kind of in between ideas right now, I, I'm I'm actually I was being serious. You know, I think new highs and new lows are equal probability at this point. And aside from a handful of long-term fundamental bets I have in individual stocks, I, I don't I don't have a position in the market right now. So, I think that's it. You, you just brought up something really important, though, because um, and, and by the way, this I think this is that this feeling of not being sure, just not being sure what the trade is, and you know, feeling like there's equal risk on both sides. I think that that's really commonly held right now for a lot of good reasons. But you 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 make a really important distinction too between the short term and long term. So there are some long term it sounds like or or are you looking at stocks that have sold off that you like for the long term and nibbling at them or or taking positions because you've come well off those highs. And you know, what do you like? What areas? Is it the things that are really beaten down? Is it tech? Is it value? What what, what do you what do you think is attractive on a longer term horizon? Well, I'll I'll give you I'll give you my number one favorite idea, which is Airbnb. Um Airbnb it just is an incredible story and it gets it just gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. You know, if you think of the fact that the global travel wallet is about two or three trillion and Airbnb at this point gets about one percent of that. And if that gets up to five percent, I mean, it's it's it just the economics of that are just astounding. Um, a lot of people view this as a tech stock. It's not really a tech stock. Um, and you know, people, I remember when Tesla first started to rally and everybody said, well, it's worth more than Ford and GM and all these other car makers combined. How is that? Well, it's a growth business. And someday people are going to say the same thing about Airbnb. They're going to say it's worth all the hotel stocks combined and they're not going to be able to figure it out. So I'm really bullish on Airbnb. And it's funny that you mentioned nibbling on stocks because you know when the market was down about 12% i was nibbling on airbnb you know adding to a longer term core position interesting stuff and and you make a really good point about understanding we're we're in an environment now where or or let me it seems like we're in an environment where you've got to kind of know what you're investing in you just said an interesting comment about airbnb not really being a tech stock and 
Um, do, do, you, do, are you, do you feel like we're in a period where you have to be a lot more specific on knowing the company, understanding the fundamentals, as opposed to just buying the sector, which is frankly what a lot of people did? You know, I mean, you threw your money in tech and it, and, and it was going to win. It was straight up. Are you being a lot more discerning? Or are you looking sector plays? Or are you looking individual stocks more in this environment? Uh, you might I'm have really, done. You may have always looked at individual stocks. I yeah, know. I'm not. I'm not a very good stock picker. Um, you know, remember I was an ETF trader, so I, I am used to like trading sectors and asset classes. So I don't consider myself to be the best stock picker. Uh, I think this is a pretty good environment for stock picking for sure. But it's also a good environment for trading sectors. I mean, you know, if you just naively bought energy and sold tech six months ago, like that's been a pretty good trade. You know, yeah. might get tougher going forward, but th there are still opportunities like that out there. Uh, we've got a couple of questions on the housing market um, from Hef. What? Uh, sorry, sorry um, not from Hef, from Daniel Diaz from RV. Any concerns on the housing market, um, given what we're seeing in rates? Yeah, uh, I think I think people tend to make a big deal about mortgage rates. Um, you know, mortgage rates are getting close to 5%. They're up They're in the upper fours now. They're 5% in a couple of places. That doesn't seem to be putting a big dent into housing demand. You know, where I live, it's really interesting. I'm friends with a number of real estate agents and appraisers, and they say that their business is getting killed. Um, but it's getting killed because there's no transaction volume, because there's no supply. There's literally no yeah. houses available on the market. There's enormous amounts of demand, but there's no supply. So there's just not a lot of transactions. So I think the housing market is still strong. I think you'd have to get rates up more. I don't know how much more uh, to really make a dent in that demand. My first mortgage that I got, I was 24 years old in 1999. My first mortgage was seven and a quarter percent. And I really didn't, I didn't think that was egregious and I was able to afford it. You know, so, you know, as, as rates go higher, it'll get rid of these, some of these people at the margins, but you know, demand is still very robust. Yeah, great point about supply. Same thing pretty much everywhere when I talk to people. I mean, I know your area is very hot, so it's probably even more extreme there. Um, but it just seems like, you know, we have that structural undersupply that that they're still working through and and plenty of people still looking to buy homes. So that's gonna that's gonna carry over even as we enter a different rate environment. I want to ask you about another issue um, that's come up and um it's liquidity. Ash Bennington spoke with Michael Howe, Managing Director at Cross Border Capital, and he expressed concern about liquidity in the market. Um, let's listen to a clip of that first, and I'll get your thoughts on the other side. I think the main takeaway is buy the dip, but this is a big dip, right? It may be a 30% a drop uh, from peak to low uh, in the indexes. So I think you've got to be cognizant of that, but central banks have got to come back in. What we live in is a world, a financial world, which is a refinancing world. A debt has to be refinanced. And the only way to do that is essentially by using liquidity. And liquidity is now increasingly under the control of central banks. So central banks have got to come back in at some stage. You know, the whole idea that central bank balance sheets will shrink back to zero or whatever it may be, or their normal, their traditional pre-2008 levels is fanciful. Central banks are a major player in the world now, and you've got to watch them. Watch the Federal Reserve and watch the People's Bank of China. Jared, is that something you're worried about? Should we be concerned about liquidity issues? Uh, we should have been worried about it for a while. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I know a lot about liquidity being a sell-side trader. 
Um, it's very difficult to transfer risk in this environment. Um, it, there's some measures of it. You know, bond market liquidity is pretty much at an all-time low. S&P E-minis liquidity are at an all-time low. There's, it's a function of a number of things. It's a function of central banks. Uh, as you raise rates, liquidity will evaporate and volatility will go up. It's a function of regulation and capital requirements. The more regulation and more capital requirements will dry up liquidity. But it's also a function of some market microstructure issues, which are very easy to fix. You know, there's no reason that NASDAQ futures need to trade in quarter ticks when the NASDAQ is at 14,000. Like that type of stuff doesn't make any sense. And there's reasons for that that I really don't want to get into today. It's just kind of, it's, it, it just pisses me off. So, yeah. What, it, you know, what do we need to worry about if we're facing, you know, what would a, what would a, a negative outcome due to liquidity issues mean? I mean, what, what, what should we be concerned about or watching for? Well, there's negative outcomes and there's positive outcomes. Um, you know, Charlie Munger actually touched on this recently. He was being interviewed and he basically said that he wished liquidity was zero because nobody would ever trade and people would just hold stuff forever. So that's one view. Uh, but people do need to trade. And when liquidity goes away, then it increases transactions costs, which affects all of us. So, you know, it doesn't affect the retail investor that much. If Apple goes from a penny wide to three pennies wide, there's not a really deterioration in transactions costs. But if you're a mutual fund or an asset manager and you're trying to sell 300 million worth of bonds and you have to sell them down a quarter instead of down an eighth, like those costs are passed on to retail investors. Yeah, which which a lot of people probably don't realize and is an important point to make. We have a question from TC from the RV site. What's Jared's take on the issues facing commodity traders' margin issues? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, nobody, nobody really saw this coming, you know, especially with the, with the nickel market. And now people are thinking about this. Um, it, because if you're, if you're a, if you're a commodity producer and you're hedging by shorting futures, uh, the likelihood that the price of the futures will explode higher and leave you with a big margin call and you don't have the cash to cover the margin call. Like, Nobody thought about this until now. And what a lot of people don't realize about commodities is commodities are upside down stocks. Okay. So when stocks are in a bear market, that's when stocks are under stress. That's when volatility increases. But when commodities are in a bull market, that's when commodities are under stress. That's when, that's when volatility increases. So the commodity markets are under a huge amount of stress right now. Um, I don't, I, th this is one of these situations with nickel. I will say that I think it's unlikely we're going to see another scenario like that in another commodity. I think the exchanges don't want to end up like the LME. They're increasing margin requirements. Uh, they're talking to big hedgers. I'm sure all these conversations are going on behind the scenes. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to see a repeat of that. Yeah, that was, and for those, I'm, I'm, I think probably most of our reviews are following along. But it was such a huge move, such a, a large, outstanding margin call, and um, they had to shut the exchange, shut trading in nickel for, I, I think it was at least two days. But it's a disaster, uh, disastrous scenario. You just don't want to do that. Um, it just completely disrupts the market um, and calls into question. A it, it, call, it brings up a lot of questions. Let's just put it that way. So um, the London exchange still having to sort of uh, uh, grapple with all of that. But um, but good good if you'd think it's not going to happen someplace else. Question from Johnny K. Um, and by the way, great 
Great explanation about commodities being upside down stocks and that the strains come on the rally. I think that a lot of us maybe weren't thinking about that before. So I love that, Jared. Thanks. Um, Johnny K asking from the RV site, given all the market dynamics, would you recommend focusing more on technicals or equity fundamentals at this point? It seems like many earnings estimates have not been adjusted down yet. Um, I saw somewhere that earnings estimates for 2022 have actually gone up. So technicals, equity fundamentals, a mix of both. What, do you, what are you thinking about, Jared? Uh, I got to tell you, um, I would say in the last three to six months, I have been focusing a lot more on technicals. Um, you know, it, 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 and also sentiment. I mean, that's what I do all the time. I focus on sentiment. But extreme bullishness on the highs, extreme bearishness on the lows, it actually it, it makes it pretty easy to trade the index a lot easier than 2021 um, when markets just basically grinded higher every day. Uh, I'm not really much of a fundamental guy, but I will say that I've been relying on technicals a lot more recently. Which is interesting because I know you are somebody that uh, that does focus on on sentiment. I want to ask, um, somebody is asking about your, um, are you still in gold, your position in gold? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually uh, about as big as I ever have been. You know, it's it's a little, um, uh, you know, the price action when it got to 2060, somebody sold the world up there and uh, at at basically at the previous highs and it came down pretty hard to 1895 Uh, had kind of a crappy day today. Um, I still the thing I fall back on is the consolidation pattern that happened from 2020 to 2022, basically this two-year consolidation that we finally broke out of at around 1820. And I think that when you break out of a wedge pattern like that, you're going to have a rally that extends the duration of the wedge pattern. So you probably, I think gold rallies into 2024. And there are a lot of there are a lot of if you like the technicals, there are also a lot of fundamental reasons people are talking about um, whether it's you know diversifying reserves, central bank action when it comes to gold. So, um, what you have a price target on that, or uh, I think it could get to twenty five hundred for sure. Yeah, we're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, two, we have two specific questions. Um, Love that you're all sending in the questions. Thank you so much. These are very specific. So I want to make sure I, I don't, you know, we don't look at them ahead of time. So I want to make sure Jared just, you can punt them away if it's not a specific thing you're looking at. Bo asking from the RV site, what happened to Barclays with the VXX? Uh, I, I read the Matt Levine piece today. Uh, not an, not an expert on that. Um, it sounds like, is this the huge? Is, is, is are they referring to the huge uh, cost they had to take for overselling the structured products? Is that what they're talking about? Or is yeah, like- that's what happened. They suspended creations in VXX for a time, and then VXX started um, trading at a premium. This affects not just the exchange traded notes, but but also their whole structured products business. And they filed to issue 
I don't know, it was like $5 billion or $20 billion worth of structured products. And they just basically goofed and they issued too many. So they had to like, buy them hugely back. hugely too many, right? Like, yeah, by a lot. Or something yeah. like so, so that's wondering why how that was how that happened. Like it's a huge error. Yeah, yeah. So they lost six hundred million dollars, and uh, those those uh, that's that's the thing about working in an investment bank. I mean, you could be doing what you do. You could be trading the five year note. You could be trading industrials, and some drunk at some other part of the firm loses six hundred million dollars, and your bonus gets cut in half. You know, yeah. so that's. That's life on Wall Street. So, <laughs> which explains why Jared is sitting where he is right now. <laughs> wisely, wisely saw that a long time ago. Um, so, we do have a question from Ross. I know you said I should never trade oil. I'm a terrible oil trader, but Ross uh, maybe disagrees with you. But he's asking where you see crude and natural gas going over the next six, 12, 24 months. And where's the best? Maybe this is where's the best traded the underlying commodities related stocks? What are you looking at in terms of energy? Um, I do buy into the bullish thesis. Uh, I mean, oil is the ultimate pain trade, okay? And sometimes I go on Twitter, and I think that oil is crowded because there's a lot of very noisy commodity accounts. Tony Greer is one of them, but also Doomberg, and there's just a whole bunch of these guys yeah. that are like permabulls on oil. So I go on Twitter, and I think that it's super crowded, but then I remember that there's a whole bunch of natural shorts on the other side of this trade. I mean, we are all short oil. Like every single person in this country is short oil. If it goes up, we experience pain. Biden is short oil. Yeah. Like that's if if oil goes up, he doesn't get reelected. So there's a bunch of natural shorts on the other side of this trade. And the people that say that it could get to 200 by the end of the year, like I don't think that's crazy talk. I don't. Uh, I have a tough time trading it. That's my problem because it's so volatile. I mean, it moves around 9%, you know, up or down in a day. It's just a huge pain in the ass to trade, and I just can't take a position in it. Yeah. I We got another question in, and I'm just um, sorry if you hear, hear me typing because I wasn't paying attention to this today. I was watching it last week. I didn't realize um, that AMC is up 44% today. I mean, they had a huge run last week um, as well. Uh, one month it's now 60, although obviously volatility in there. Um, Hef from the RV site is asking, um, what, what's your take on what's going on and why they're rallying? Any thoughts on that? It, AMC and GME. Well, I think it's not just AMC and GameStop. I think it's also crypto. You know, yes. I think all those, all those things combined sort of lead you to believe that retail investors are dipping a toe back in. Uh, I don't really know what that means. Uh, I don't know if that means that the stock market has the woods or there's any implications to that. Uh, I don't have a position in AMC or GameStop at the moment. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that all this stuff is rallying at the same time. And it's actually, I saw a list of names. Uh, it's not just AMC and GameStop. There's really like 10 names that uh, that have moved a lot. And they're all, they're all meme stocks. Interesting. Um... But we know we know you know that that is extremely volatile and can be maybe maybe short term. I mean, I don't know that we can read anything into it. But great question and great flag. Thank you for that because I didn't even realize that was happening today. Jared, we're out of time. It has been fantastic as always. We hit a lot of topics and fun fact. Jared and I are both going to be 
in California together at the Real Vision Macro Experience next week, um, which is going to be a ton of fun and a lot of great content. So we're looking forward to that and hope you can all participate uh, in some way. So that'll be super fun. Um, in the meantime, thanks for tuning in. Tony Greer, speaking of, any any of those oil question, commodity questions, make sure you come pack them with them tomorrow because Tony Greer is going to be here with Warren Pies. Um, in the meantime, the conversation continues on the exchange. Jared, thanks so much. It was fun. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Uh, for the rest of you, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.